In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth, is discussing the believer's hope in this life in the face of death. And he grounds that hope saying, For we walk by faith, not by sight. He's saying we have courage now in this life, even at the prospect of death, because by faith we understand that death means that we will be with the Lord. And so that changes things now. This faith that we possess gives us a courage now. We walk by faith and not by sight. And this phrase, this idea of walking by faith and not by sight, is a good summation of the Christian life. And we even use it fairly regularly. Uh, we, we are those, as Christians, those trusting Christ, we are those who take our steps in life, that is, we order our days based on what God says in His Word and in light of the promises of God about what is yet to come. Uh, We do not merely follow our senses and live by impulse and whatever we see, we just go after and so on. These senses of ours that can often be so misleading. Uh, We have seen warnings about living by sight in the Wednesday series on Samson that we just recently concluded, where Samson so often is being misled by the things he sees that he delights in, and so he goes after. We've been looking at that. Uh, Also, earlier, when we were in Genesis chapter 3, there Eve, likewise, as she looked at this tree that was forbidden, Uh, it was a beautiful tree, it was pleasant to the eyes, it was desirable to make one wise, it says, and so she ends up eating. She's misled in part by her eyes by what she saw and not taking into account what God had said. Additionally, we see this difference between walking by faith on the one hand and walking by sight on the other in our text today, which is Genesis chapter 13. So I'll invite you to turn there with me to Genesis chapter 13. If you remember last time we were in Genesis, so that's two Sundays ago now, uh, we saw Abram go down into Egypt and we saw that the text there really highlights for us Abram's sin and also God's faithfulness to preserve Abram and his wife Sarai through it. Even though Abram sinned in this great way, he's chastised, he's corrected, but he's preserved by God. And he's turned around and he heads back. And in today's passage, we see Abram's faith renewed. And he becomes here once again an example to us of walking by faith. On the other hand, it is his nephew Lot who becomes the warning to us about the danger of living merely by sight. And so let's begin. We'll read chapter 13 and then we'll go through it in more detail. So Genesis 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to that place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. 
And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is, it not, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the, the, that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the Garden of God, Garden of the Lord, sorry, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. God's people are called to walk by faith in God and in his promises and not merely by our sight, not merely what appeals to our senses. This has been the way of things always. This has been the way of things from the time of Abram when Paul wrote to the Corinthians about walking by faith and not by sight and in our day as well. And here in this chapter that we've just read, we have a contrast between the two. And before we would maybe become dismissive of Lot, um, consider that in 2 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Peter there, under inspiration of the Spirit, calls Lot a righteous man. Lot was a man who did indeed possess faith. And as we have seen, he left his homeland along with Abram and along with Terah, Abram's father. He left and traveled with him. And I made the case that uh, both Terah and Lot believed as Abram did, and that's why they left with him. And I think Peter telling us that uh, Lot was a righteous man, I think, confirms that interpretation. He was a man of faith. He believed the promise that the Lord had made to Abram, and that's why he has been traveling with him. And so the warnings that we see in this chapter about walking by sight and walking by faith, the warnings about the errors and perils of walking by sight are not merely warnings that are applicable to unbelievers. Uh, we can't say, well, I'm a Christian, therefore I'm one who walks by faith, therefore these warnings don't have anything to do with me. Lot was a believer in the Lord. And although Christians are those who are rightly described as those who walk by faith, this is true of the Lord's people of believers we do clearly at times fail in this. We do succumb to walking by sight in various ways at various times. 
And so the warnings that are presented to us here in the life of Lot are for us. So as we go through this today, the outline has five points to it. Uh, The first and the last points have to do with the blessedness of walking by faith. And the middle three points are warnings about walking by sight. So let's begin. Number one, walking by faith makes a man peaceable and free. Walking by faith makes a man peaceable and free. Uh, The first six verses of the chapter set the scene for us. And in it, we can see that Abram's faith was renewed and refreshed after the disaster that was his trip down to Egypt. And so in verse 1, we read, So Abram went up from Egypt. He's been chastised, kicked out of Egypt by Pharaoh, we're told. It says, He and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. So Abram has returned from Egypt back to the Negev, the southern region of Canaan. And in verse 2 there, his wealth is noted. And his wealth becomes important to the story for reasons as we'll see. Uh, But let's look at verse 3. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So as he has returned, he came through in the Negev, and then eventually he ends up back between Bethel and Ai. Uh, This was referenced back in chapter 12, verse 8. Uh, And once again, he has returned to this place where he had built an altar previously, and he's calling upon the name of the Lord. He's been chastised, but we see him back in this land that he was to sojourn in. He's renewed. He's worshiping the Lord. He's offering sacrifice to him. He is trusting in his Lord, calling out to him in prayer, calling upon the name of the Lord. And it is this faith that's going to ground Abram's actions in this chapter. It's going to ground his response to the conflict that arises. Which is to say, in this particular chapter, Abram is going to act in a manner that is consistent with his faith. But before we get to his response to the problem, let's look at verses 5 to 7 where the conflict arises. Verse 5 says, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So Lot, likewise, is wealthy. Uh, this reminds us to think of, of the promise to Abram that, those, that the Lord would bless those who bless Abram. Lot blesses Abram. He's a friend. He's family. He's close with Abram. And the Lord, in this case, has materially provided and blessed Lot in addition to Abram. Uh, verse 6 says, So that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So while the Lord is blessing Abram and Lot with this wealth, it also occasions a conflict between the herdsmen belonging to these two men. Uh, The town is not big enough for the both of them. That's essentially it. There's not enough space for all of them. They have so much now. So even this this great blessing of the Lord, we might note, uh, occasions still with it certain problems, certain uh, conflicts arise. If both men were kind of destitute and didn't have very much, 
This would never occur, but they are blessed to the Lord. They have lots, and still they find they have difficulties to deal with in this life. Uh, the reference here to the Canaanites and Perizzites dwelling in the land uh, could simply be a reminder that as, as of yet, Abram still does not possess this land. He is still technically sojourning here. He's still an alien. This isn't quite his land. So they have a lot of people, him and Lot, and they're dwelling in someone else's land, and there's just not enough of it here for the both of them. And so strife arises. And then we see Abram propose a solution, beginning in verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Abram's trust in the Lord here makes him peaceable and free. Abram is the one who comes along and proposes this solution. He does not desire conflict. He desires to be at peace with Lot. Let there be no strife, he says, for we are kinsmen or we are brothers. Of course, we know that they were blood relatives, but Lot was Abram's nephew. They're not technically brothers. It is possible that Abram has in mind here more than just their blood relations, but their common faith in the Lord. He doesn't want things to get in the way. He doesn't want this land issue to get in the way. He wants to preserve this bond they have, and he has a peaceable spirit about him that desires this. And the solution that he proposes is one that is exceedingly generous. Abram is the elder of the two. He is the one who has received the promise from the Lord. Lot's, in a sense, kind of tagging along with him. And yet, he gives to Lot, his nephew, the priority. He tells Lot, you go ahead, pick the land. It's all before us. You pick whichever direction you want to go, and I'll go the other way. Only let us not be in contention with one another. Abram is so far here from lording it over Lot. This is a a remarkably generous proposal of him. Abram is trusting in his God here. He has a promise from God and he doesn't need to so tightly hold on to one stretch of land over the other. He trusts his God to provide whatever way Lot decides to go. He knows and trusts that one day all of this land is going to belong to him and to his offspring. Moreover, we know that by faith, Hebrews 11.10 tells us that Abram understood there was an even greater promise yet to come, that all of this land that he was being promised was foreshadowing an even greater heavenly dwelling. And that reality and understanding that Abram possessed, Hebrews 11.10 tells us, would be even all the more reason for Abram to not hold so tightly to any strip of this land that was before him. He is genuinely free as he trusts in his God to let Lot go whatever way he wants. And I'll trust the Lord with whatever's left. All things are in the Lord's hands. Better to be at peace with his kin. Better to risk even a more difficult path if necessary than to assert his own right and his own dominance over his nephew. Abram is here entrusting himself to the Lord. I think 
by nature, Abram would not do this. No man would. He'd be looking out for number one. He'd be wanting to do what's in his own interest. And Abram could have easily uh, justified choosing whatever land he wants first. Uh, Consider, he, he had many people, men and women, and animals, many who were dependent upon him. He was the older, which meant something back then. He had the priority over his nephew. God had made the promises he had made to Abram, not to Lot. There's a priority there. He could easily have used these things, and even with a, a sense of justice, and we even say maybe that would be right for him to pick, he could easily have done that, but he doesn't do that. Abram's faith has made him peaceable, and generous and free. You pick the land and I'll take whatever's left. Those who walk by faith are indeed peacemakers. The fruit of the Spirit, we are told, is peace. Paul told the Philippians, as we read earlier, to let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Those trusting in the Lord, we we can be slighted in this life. We don't need to be first In everything. Faith is looking to the ultimate promises of God and isn't putting all our hope in this earthly existence so that we've got to squeeze everything we possibly can from everybody around us and try to assert ourselves to have the very best of everything and be first in everything. Faith loosens our grip upon this earth. Likewise, we can absorb an insult. And as Jesus said, turn the other cheek. We can even endure being wronged. Doesn't make it right. But even if justice on this earth is never granted, we can still endure that with a measure of joy, knowing by faith that none of this escapes God's notice. All things are in his hand. And one day he certainly will deal with all injustices, including those that have been done against us. And even if such things continue throughout our lives and we are met with great difficulties and suffering of various sorts, if we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, then our eternities are secure. Eternity in the new heavens and new earth is what awaits us. And so we can hold loosely then to the things of this earth. We can take even a back seat to others. We can be peaceable. This is what walking by faith does for men and women. And this is an important reminder in a time where there are many, many things that do indeed vex our souls and many things that are not right all around us in society. Where justice is a thing that is commonly discussed and a word that is thrown around but is very poorly understood, let alone pursued. We understand we are not living our best lives now. This is what faith does. But let's turn here. Let's keep going and look to Lot as we have in Lot an example of walking by sight and warnings for us. So second point of the outline, walking by sight overemphasizes what the eyes perceive. Notice in verse 10, it says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar 
This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's eyes here at the proposal of Abram looks up. He looks up and with his physical sight, he sees this beautiful, well-watered land. There's no lack here. It's not dry. There's lots of prospects here. And so he chooses, as we will see, to go that way. Now, I just want to say that in and of itself, a beautiful land that is well watered is not a bad thing. Uh, Living by faith doesn't mean we can't enjoy anything on this earth or acknowledge that anything is good or beautiful. Uh, The Garden of Eden was itself, as we saw, a beautiful garden. The trees were pleasant to the eyes. It was a beautiful place. God has created a beautiful creation. Seeing and acknowledging this is a good thing. Even later, the land of Canaan will be described uh, as the land that is flowing with milk and honey. It is a place that is well supplied. It's good to have a land that is not in drought. It is good to have uh, lots of resources at our fingertips as we live our lives. These are good things. And to acknowledge these things are, are, is a way we can honor the Lord by acknowledging beauty. But what becomes apparent here is that Lot is ignoring other factors and he's being led astray by his eyes, by what his eyes see. That is, the physical features of this area are the main thing being considered here by Lot as he chooses where he goes. Given what was evidently known, even in their day, that this beautiful area was inhabited by a particularly wicked group of people, it would seem clear that spiritual concern is not adequately being taken into consideration here by Lot as he makes his decision. These infamously wicked people dwell here, but it's a beautiful place. That's what Lot's seeing, and that's how Lot makes his decision. Believers are not to be dominated by the physical senses like our sight. We don't deny beauty or goodness where it is evident, but it is not our only concern. Had Lot been thinking here of his soul, and maybe more significantly, the souls of those within his care, he could have acknowledged on the one hand that's a beautiful and well-watered area, and yet still chosen to go somewhere else to avoid the corruption that was evident in that area. What he saw with his eyes should not have been the main deciding factor. There's obvious application here for us, I think, when we consider choosing places where we live. I realize it's not always simply a matter of just picking a place on a map. Uh, But sometimes Christians do act similarly to Lot. They move to an area that is very beautiful. It's very appealing to the eyes and maybe to the flesh and, and, and lots of prospects for work only to move there and arrive there and realize there's really no decent church nearby and they have no spiritual fellowship. And even in this beautiful area, there's then these unique and various types of temptations they find there. And they realize perhaps it's not a great place for their children to be raised and so on. This is not an uncommon experience. So if you move to Weyburn because it looked like the garden of the Lord, uh, (laughs) repent. Nobody? 
But besides the location that we live in, this has a, obviously a broader application to us. I wonder how many days we have spent more or less just living by impulse, responding to what we see and not really taking due care for how our souls are affected by the decisions that we are making and the choices that we make. We see something, it looks great, we desire it, we want it, and we buy it, or we figure out how we're going to get it, or we move toward that thing. Not every decision we make, obviously, will have the same impact as moving near to Sodom as Lot did, but the principle is the same, that of living by sight. And we may not always see obvious detrimental effects right away of such living, but there will be some. In 1 John, we are warned, chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. As believers, we are those who are to be wary of putting too much stock in what our eyes see and what our hearts then desire. We are wary of these things and careful. That is not our only consideration. Thirdly, walking by sight leads to foolish decisions. If Abram made a wise and peaceable decision, we see Lot doing the opposite. He makes a foolish decision. And this, I think, making foolish decisions, this will inevitably be a fruit of walking by sight over faith. doesn't mean every decision will necessarily be awful, uh, but there will be foolish decisions made by those who walk by sight. So look at verse 11. It says, So... That is, because he looks up and sees this well-watered area that looks beautiful to the eyes. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Lot looked up, saw the land was beautiful, and so... Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and went and moved right up near to Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah's precise locations are somewhat debated, but likely they were at the southeastern end of the Dead Sea. And the Jordan Valley then would have extended around that sea. And we are told he moved his tent as far as Sodom. So what his eyes have beheld, the lust of his eyes has led to this decision that takes Lot and all within his care, presumably many people, herdsmen, servants. He has much stuff with that herdsman, family. It brings them all into close proximity with those who were notoriously wicked. And given how we know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah plays out, this is clearly not a wise decision that he has made. It is not the case that every decision we make is black and white in terms of what is wise and what is folly. That in every decision, one choice is wise and another one is folly. Often we're wrestling on a level of what might be wisest, what might be a little wiser, and so on. 
Often the, the one seeking to live by faith prays, seeks God in his word to know what to do, seeks wise counsel, and things are still not obvious about what decision we're going to make. But such a person who is seeking to make decisions that way, praying, seeking the Lord in it, seeking wise counsel, such a person is not simply living by sight, but is living by faith. That's what we do when we live by faith. That's how we try to make decisions. And even if a decision is not immediately obvious about what you ought to do, a foolish option, an outright foolish decision will likely, I think, be exposed in that process of prayer, scripture reading, and consulting wise counsel. Here, an obviously foolish decision is made by Lot. Again, walking by faith doesn't mean every decision is obvious. But what we can say with certainty is that operating in the flesh and walking by sight will necessarily result in foolish decisions if you're not taking due concern for the spiritual good of yourself into account or the spiritual good of those around you or those who are under your care. Fourthly, walking by sight leads to further sin and vexation. Not only does Lot make a foolish decision, but that's going to lead to other sin and vexation. At the end of verse 12, we're told that Lot's tent was near Sodom. And then in verse 13, it says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. They were notoriously evil. It is true that all men are sinners. And yet it is also true that some stand out in this regard. The Bible doesn't deny that. There are different levels of evil. We can acknowledge that. We've talked about this as we've talked about the doctrine of total depravity. Every man is a sinner, but it doesn't mean that every man always acts as evil as he always could. But there are some who act incredibly evil, maybe more so than others. And that's how it was with Sodom. They were great sinners against the Lord. And Lot's folly has led him down a dangerous path here. In verse 12, his tent is as far as Sodom. It's getting close to Sodom. It's right there. But then in the next chapter, in chapter 14, in verse 12, we find out that Lot was dwelling in Sodom. And then when the story picks up again in chapter 19, we're back in Sodom. The two angels come to investigate Sodom before they destroy it. Lot is found to be sitting in the gate at Sodom. Perhaps, perhaps telling us he had even some position by sitting in the gate. And then we're told he takes these angels who he thought were men. He takes them to his house. So he goes to pitch his tent near Sodom. But as the story develops, he's now in Sodom, living right within the city. And we will see in chapter 19, Lot act corruptly. Remember, his solution is to offer the men of the city his daughters to try to stave off these wicked Sodomites. And yet, again, we shouldn't think that Lot has merely thrown all in with the people of Sodom either. We know this because in, the, in chapter 19, he is trying to protect those men, the angels who he 
understands to be men. He's trying to keep them from staying out in the courtyard because he knows what's going to happen. He wants to bring them in and protect them. He pleads with the men of Sodom not to do this wicked thing. So he hasn't just totally thrown in with them. Moreover, there is the the passage from 2 Peter, and I'll read that now, chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. It says, And if he, God, rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Lot was living in distress, Peter tells us, as he was living in Sodom, tormenting his righteous soul. Was his move to Sodom worth the physical beauty of the land and the ample supply of the valley? He lived, we're told, something of a tortured existence there. And the way Peter words it, Lot himself tormented his soul. He It implies he bore some blame for this because it wasn't necessary that he was living there in the first place. Furthermore, in Genesis chapter 18, before the angels show up to, uh, to, to Lot and Abram is praying and discussing with the Lord what's going to happen, God tells Abram there that he would indeed spare Sodom if he could find even 10 righteous people within it. If there were 10 men, women of faith there, he would spare it. We know that there were a number of people who would have been part of Lot's family, part of his servants and herdsmen. He was a wealthy man. And so it would seem that those individuals fared far worse than Lot did as there were not even ten righteous people to be found. Lot's daughters married men of Sodom who wouldn't flee when the time came. And of course, we recall that even Lot's own wife fell under the judgment that came upon Sodom as she yearned for it, as she looked back, as they were on their way out. The consequences were significant for Lot and for those under his care. In this case. Now we should praise God and be thankful that we are not always chastised so severely for our sins as Lot was in this case. But we should also read this as something of a warning to us that sin and fleshly living are not to be toyed with in presuming upon God's grace. If you remember from chapter 12, We looked at that encouragement there that even as Abram acts so foolishly in the event where he he lies about Sarai and hands her over to Pharaoh essentially and stands by and does nothing, that God preserved Abram there and we're encouraged by God's preserving of his people. And yet here we are also warned that we should not therefore just say, oh well, when it comes to our sin, we should not presume upon it. There were consequences for Lot and for his family based on this fleshly living by sight. You recall, of course, Christ's own words when he was talking about dealing with sin, using extreme language to say it's better to pluck out your eye if it causes you to sin and to go to heaven with one eye or no eyes rather than to go to hell with both eyes.
He doesn't, of course, mean that literally, and we're glad for that. But he is really communicating there to us the seriousness of sin. And any attitude that would just seek to kind of dabble in it and not take it seriously. Christians can deceive ourselves into thinking that we can just dabble in this sin a little bit. I won't get sucked right in. I know my limits. I won't get burned by this thing. I've got many pastor friends, and one who's even dealing with this right now, where he's got a young man, been married a few years. He's in tears before him because he has just committed adultery on his wonderful wife. You say, well, how? He's repentant about it. He knows it's wrong. He's not excusing it. He's bringing it to the light. Well, how did he get there? It begins by just, I can get close to this line. That's okay. I won't, this sin won't burn me. Just start with, you know, this lust is not going to, it's okay. And then it advances and progresses until such an act has occurred. It's foolish to think, I can handle this. Sometimes believers do. We try to get as close to sin as we can. We want to know, where is the line where that becomes sin? And then I'm just going to just back it off just a slight bit. I want to get as close as I can, enjoy as much of that as I possibly can, and I just won't cross that line to sin. We feel we can live right up there next to Sodom, but we're not going to be influenced by it. We won't be corrupted. And maybe, and maybe we won't get sucked right in. But what effects will it have? For someone who is truly born again, it will create a misery within you of sorts to continually toy with sin and be as close to it as you can and cross the line, try and back off and just play around in an area of sin. A troubled conscience, a tormented soul. This is what it was for Lot. He's tormenting his soul as he lives there, surrounded by this wickedness, the wickedness he both saw and heard, we're told. The reality is the Christian life is not described in the Bible as peacefully cozying up to sin. But as Paul says in Philippians, it's described as pressing on toward the prize. If God is sanctifying me in and through Christ Jesus, I want as much of that now as I possibly can. Striving forward to live in light of eternity. Hebrews chapter 12 exhorts us to throw off every weight and the sin which clings so closely. To run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's the attitude we bring to it, not how close can I get to it. It's the wrong question. We might also do well to ask ourselves what effect our worldliness and toying with it will have on those around us, including those in our home, our children. If our dealings are just continuously in worldly matters, that we find time for various earthly pursuits. But then there's really no or very little worship of God in the home, very little discussion about the things of the Lord. If we're too busy to be able to read the Bible or to pray with our family, but yet we find time for every other earthly pursuit, even things that might be good in and of themselves. 
If fellowship is not prioritized, but it's put on the back burner anytime something else arises, we ought to be asking ourselves if we are trying to pitch our tents too close to Sodom. Are we living too much for the things of this world, trying to enjoy it so much that we're pushing the boundaries and consumed by worldliness? We should be wary of and asking the question about what effects this would have upon our homes and upon others. What does my spending, my use of time, my conversations, my talk, my hopes for my children, what do these say about my priorities and my desires? In all of these things, do I evidence a worldly thinking Or am I seeking to approach these areas of life in faith, in light of Scripture, and certainly in light of eternity? These are the kinds of questions we ought to ask ourselves as we evaluate ourselves. And let's be honest, there's nobody here who has completely conquered all worldliness. And so if you feel the sting of it, the weight of it, maybe conviction of worldliness in a particular area or a lax attitude towards some sin, I encourage you to renew your mind here. See the evils of this, repent of it and strive against it to not make peace with this sin. Well, I guess it's just it. Don't make peace with violating your conscience over and over again. Battle it. Pray about it. Get help from a brother or sister. Have others pray for you about it. Martin Luther very famously, when he was being forced to recant, and he said, I, can, I can't, he said he had to be convinced by Scripture and sound reason Otherwise, his conscience was convicting him of these doctrines, these things he wrote about and taught about. And he said he can't go against conscience because it's neither right nor safe. It's not just not right, but it's not safe. If I keep violating my conscience over and over again, my conscience will stop being sensitive to the things of the Lord. It'll stop functioning rightly. And let's... Let this, as we feel the the weight of it, as we feel the sting of our sin, be an occasion to pray to God for mercy. Like everyone who has children feels the weight of being a bad example to them. I think this is a regular prayer for parents, is it not? That our, our sins would not become an excuse or an occasion for our kids to revile the Lord. This is where repentance is part of that testimony to our children. Dad doesn't always have it right. Dad does struggle with worldliness, and I know this, and it's not right here, the sin that I have just committed. This is part of our testimony to our children, and we cry out to God for grace for our children, that he would save them in his grace, that as we weakly at times try to teach them the scriptures and It seems chaos because it's after supper and there's a million things going on or whatever. We're praying to God for his mercy upon our children. And we remember that even as we seek to walk in repentance, as we seek to walk by faith, it is not perfect 
parenting. It is not perfect walking by faith that saves, but it is God and His grace who does it. I think we have to see here that Lot's actions had consequences within his own family. And so if we are to neglect the means of God's grace in our own lives, there could very well be consequences. Yet, of course, we also know that parents, just continuing on with family life, could walk by faith, relative consistency, teach their children the things of the Lord, be at church every Sunday, and still children can wander off into disobedience. But we do have a measure of hopefulness when the means of grace are being continually attended to. If God uses the means of his word and the means of the gospel to save sinners, then we have hopefulness where those means are being attended to with regularity. It doesn't put God in our debt that now he has to, by obligation, save all the children and all those around us if we do that. But we do it to try to honor our Lord, to try to raise our families as he calls us to. And we submit the results to his hands. Let's quickly move on to point number five. Walking by faith is the blessed life. So we'll just quickly finish up this chapter here. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So Lot lifted up his own eyes and saw the beautiful valley and he chose it. And here in parallel to that, it is the Lord who tells Abram, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. And then he proceeds to reaffirm the promise already made that all of this land would belong to him and to his offspring. And that his offspring would abound. They'd be numerous as the dust of the earth. Abram could certainly look up and with his physical eyes see this. But he is taking what God says here on faith. He's receiving these promises by believing. At this point, Abram still doesn't own any of this land. At this point, Abram still has zero offspring of his own. He can see this land, but it's not yet his. He can hear the promise of offspring, but he doesn't even have a single one, let alone as many as the dust. Abram remains a sojourner in this land. It's not yet his. He is 
walking by faith. He's told to arise and to continue on his sojourning as he's to walk the length and the breadth of this land, to see all of this land that the Lord is promising to him. But he has not yet received it. And eventually he settles in for a time at Hebron where he once more builds an altar to the Lord and worships the Lord there. Lot walks by sight and heads off into a vexing and soul-torturing life. Abram, in trusting God, has his eyes set on the Lord and upon what the Lord has promised and what the Lord has said. And whatever trials he encountered during his wanderings, he was undoubtedly strengthened by remembrance of this promise, this reaffirmation of the promise of God that we find here in addition to what he's already been promised in chapter 12. Abram wasn't settled in the most visually stunning part of the land, nor perhaps even the most fruitful. In much of this paragraph here, he's still wandering. But he was living a blessed life by trusting in the Lord. He was living the good life, if you will. And such life isn't necessarily easy, but it is the good life. Lift up your eyes and see the promises of God by faith and live in light of them. That's what Abram was doing. That's what he was called to do. That's what we are called to do. To behold with eyes of faith the promises of God and his word and the directions of God in here and live in light of those as best we can. Not merely by what our eyes see and would tell us would be good to do or to have or whatever. And the longer we go, the more precious these promises will be. Christians are described by Paul as those who walk by faith and not by sight. We do not see God with our physical eyes, but we do see his handiwork in creation and have come to know by faith that he created all these things that we do see out of nothing. We do not see the judgment seat of God with our physical eyes, but we know it to be a fact that one day all men will stand before him as we read his word and take it on faith. We understand that not only has God created all things, but that God is holy and that he is just and that he will bring about perfect justice. And in light of that, we understand our great need for God's gracious pardon of our sins and also for an imputed righteousness to be credited to our account because of our own lack of our own righteousness, even now. And though we cannot see Golgotha with physical eyes, we see it, we behold it in the pages of Scripture. With eyes of faith, we see the eternal Son of God, the offspring of Abraham according to the flesh, there at Calvary, offering himself and making propitiation for the sins of his people, bearing the wrath of God on our behalf. And we see that our hope of standing before God's judgment comes only by faith in Christ Jesus. We see, moreover, with eyes of faith, the promises that the world makes to us, tempting as they may be, and though we sometimes fall into them, 
We do see with eyes of faith that they are not worth comparing with the glory that awaits those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that the reproach of Christ is greater treasure than any treasure that Egypt or any other nation on this earth could give us. We understand by faith that it is not folly to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have our security eternal in Him. We see that it is folly to gain the whole world only to then lose one's soul. We see moreover that God's law demanding perfection is good. It is good. It is not a ladder that we can climb in order to attain a right standing before God. But His law is nevertheless good. It lays out the righteousness of God. And it is a good guide for those who are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. It guides us into telling us what pleases our saving and gracious God. And we see with eyes of faith that those who trust in the Lord in this life will indeed be raised eternally to dwell in the perfect new creation with our Lord where nothing wicked will ever be. And so we walk, we live our days, we make our decisions with all of these things in mind and more. To the best of our ability, may God help us. We are those who therefore factor in spiritual benefit and hurt in decision-making. Not just physical realities or temporal benefits and pleasures. We look with skepticism at the boastings and promises of our world. We are cautious even about our own desires, understanding that sin is lodged in the heart and we still battle with our flesh. And so we know that there are many times we fail to walk by faith. And so, by faith, once again, look to the promises of God in Christ Jesus, that he saves sinners who don't measure up on their own accord and live good enough, but who look away from their own works and efforts to Jesus Christ in faith, who place our hope in what Christ has accomplished in his life and death and resurrection on our behalf. Trust that he died for your sins of yesterday, of today, and of tomorrow as well, and that you are justified through that faith, not through your subsequent walking by faith. Consider that Lot is in heaven. This ought to be something of a comfort in our failings. Though, of course, it is not an excuse to cozy up to sin. We see the warning here from Lot. But yet, Peter can speak of him as a righteous man. He did possess faith. He is in heaven, not because he was so righteous and excellent in all the decisions that he made, but because of the righteousness that comes by faith. The offspring of Abraham would come one day and die for Lot's sins, just as he would for Abram's, just as he would for all of the Lord's people. 
So let's recall that as we seek to combat our own worldliness and walk by faith. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know that we are often overemphasizing the the things that we see with our eyes. We are so easily, it seems, sometimes led astray. Father, something shiny comes across our path and we start to chase it before we've even thought very clearly about it. Father, forgive us for these things. We, we lament that these things are so. Father, give us the courage and the strength to f- battle our sin. Father, if there are things that are just unnecessary to life, but that we won't deal with properly, that we won't get rid of obstacles to our sanctification, that we won't take seriously to deal with them and purge ourselves of them, Father, convict us of this and give us the strength to do what's necessary. Father, none of this is to try to earn salvation before you. But it is in light of all of your goodness and grace to us in Christ Jesus. We are reminded that your law demands perfection. That perfect holiness is good. That's what we desire. And we know we will fall short of it in this life. But we are thankful that you are sanctifying us. And that you promise to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This Once more is our hope that this is a gracious thing that you do for your people. But Father, give us that mindset as those resting in what Christ has done, that we would joyfully even make war with our sin, that we would confess and repent quickly of our sins and then go to battle against them. Father, may it be our desire to strive, to strain forward, to run the race, to pursue what is godly and good and leave behind the sin that entangles. Father, by your spirit, strengthen us to walk in this way, to run in this way. I pray that you would affirm to our hearts again, to our minds, the wonderful promises of eternity that you give to us in your word. The promises even for this life that You will not leave us or forsake us, come what may. Father, that even if we were to lose all of our earthly goods, we would still have reason to be joyful and thankful. Father, this is not only what your word teaches, but it has been the experience and the reality of your people throughout the ages that have had to endure difficulty. Father, keep us from fearfulness at what may or may not come around the corner. Father, we are in your hands. Help us to know that is good and right. Father, give rest to your weary people and give us confidence in your goodness and greatness. Help us in all of these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.